It was 10 years ago that Grape Encounters Radio was born inside a crumbling old barn far off the beaten path in California's Central Coast wine country. Host David Wilson and his team had to keep it underground. After all, they were going to present wine in a very different, a very unpretentious way. The wine snobs were not going to like this one bit. There would be protests, tar and feathers, Supreme Court challenges, and more. The Grape Encounters team was going to challenge the old ways and fight to return wine to the masses without fear of guilt for not knowing how to pronounce terroir or sommelier or gewürztraminer or viognier. This week, Grape Encounters marches forward with the next 500 episodes for wine enthusiasts from every walk of life. Over the past 10 years, we've learned one very valuable lesson. People dig what we've been sharing. Heck, even the Supreme Court justices are having more fun with their wine. Except one or two who like beer. Today, we're off and running with the next 500 episodes of Grape Encounters Radio. A very different kind of wine show that is as much about you as it is about what you have in your glass. We're here to make wine more fun. So buckle up for one heck of a ride as we uncork the next decade of Grape Encounters. Oh my gosh, and what a month we are having on Grape Encounters. Just a couple of weeks ago, celebrated the 500th episode of Grape Encounters Radio. That is actually 10 years of being on the radio and talking to y'all. I I remember the first time I went on the radio, I thought, I'm going to get tarred and feathered for sure. You know, the first show I ever did was with Keith Sarlos, so it was appropriate that when we did our 500th episode, we had Keith on. I love that guy. He was just getting started, he and his family, with the Sarlos and Sons Winery. And they knew basically nothing about wine at the time, but they were following their instincts and their heart. Keith was the one who turned me on to a guy named Wes Hagen. And Wes Hagen intimidated the living snot out of me. And the reason that he intimidated the snot out of me is because everybody told me, this guy knows so much about wine. He's the guru of wine on the central coast of California. And I met him. I don't know what to say except that he kind of scared me because his knowledge was so deep and the breadth of what he knew about wine was so amazing to me. But the thing about Wes was he was just a regular guy and frankly, one of the last remaining hippies on planet Earth. (laughs) And I wanted to have Wes on that 500th episode, but Wes was off and I think he was in Chicago or something like that. But we decided that we were going to do basically a month of shows to celebrate our 500th and also our 10-year anniversary. And this is the last of those shows. And if you want to guess who's on the line, you'll probably be right. It's Wes Hagen. And Wes, thank you so much for joining me. This is a fitting way to end our celebration. But you know what? You'll be back for the thousandth episode as well. 
That's great. Well, thank you so much, David, for having me on. And it's so exciting. And congratulations to Grape Encounters and uh, your whole family for really taking this ride. I mean, if you look at the people that have been on your show and around your show, it's basically a who's who of California wine and beyond France, Italy, you name it. And uh, you are thirsty. And one thing I love about coming on the show with you is that you do an amazing job of sort of projecting the questions that I think that the people out there that want to know more about wine, but may feel a little bit intimidated about it. You don't put up with snobbery. You don't put up with the things that are holding wine back. What you do is you promote the idea that wine can be easy, wine can be fun, and let's just shut the heck up and get our drink on. Well, you know, you said something to me a a zillion years ago, and I have quoted it uh, probably a thousand times. You said that wine should be a social lubricant that stimulates conversation about everything except the wine. And I, and I think that, you know, of all the things that anybody has ever said to me, that was the most brilliant because uh, before I did the show, I loved sitting down with my friends and just enjoying wine. And wine is such a strange product because for whatever reason, there are all these people out there that think that wine is a biology project that you have to, you know, like a frog, dissect it and, you know, pick it apart and try to understand it in far greater ways than we try to understand other things in the world. It takes a lot of the fun out of it. And, you know, it's been very deflating, I think, for so many people. And and what it does to the average consumer is, you know, you've got these 80 or 90% of the people who just drink wine because, gosh, I like wine. And they drink it to enjoy it. And then you've got this 10% at best that say, oh, no, I'm sorry, you can't enjoy wine unless you pick it apart. You're going to have to dissect it. You're going to have to understand it. You're going to have to be a soil scientist. You're going to have to be a meteorologist. You're going to have to be a botanist. You know, all of these different things. And it's just BS. And it's sickening to me because it has ruined it for the masses. And all we've ever wanted to do on this show is just return wine to the masses. And that is not to say, Wes, that if you want to dive deep, you want to learn that other stuff, well, of course you're welcome to. And it's admirable to do that. But at the same time, it isn't a necessity. I think it's a logical fallacy. In fact, I think it's the nominal fallacy, which means that if you name something, somehow you know it better, that you can say that's a robin and walk away from that bird, not thinking anymore about how beautiful it is, how it looks against the background, the blue sky behind it, what a beautiful day it is, here comes spring, that just by naming something and saying, I smell blackberry, blueberry, strawberry, and a sousant of huckleberry. Well, who cares? I mean, I don't care what you smell in a wine. If you know that every wine you've ever tasted smells like cherries. So then when you smell a wine that smells like cherries, you think, I'm going to really like that wine. Okay, that might be meaningful. And the other reason to know too much about wine is you want to prove that you know something that other people don't. You want to be the guy. You want to be the person that people ask about wine. You want to be the person at your work that people ask what they should be buying. I think helping people understand wine is fantastic. But at some point, I think we need to realize it's just fermented grape juice. It's fancy fermented grape juice. And that probably half the wine in this country is not consumed out of a 750 milliliter bottle. It's consumed out of big bottles, gallon 
own jugs and boxes. And those are the people that are enjoying wine as much as anybody. I would put, you know, the boxed wine drinker, you know, next to someone at a fancy first growth Bordeaux tasting and you ask who enjoys wine more. I may just say that, you know, chances are it could be the person drinking the boxed wine. So why did you become geeky? Because it was my job. So I always very commonly go back to the golf swing. If you are a pro golfer, you spend four or five hours a day practicing your swing. So when you get to the course, you don't have to think about your mechanics. And that's exactly why I'm a geek is that I can take, you know, 25 years, even more, 25 years of professional wine geekiness. And the fact that I've been, you know, really interested in wine since I was nine years old and my uh, stepfather gave me my first taste of uh, 1970 uh, Lafitte Rothschild, which I was doing the dishes and it was basically me, you know, just taking a little taste out of a glass as it was delivered to me to do the dishes. But the reason I'm a geek, really, I, I used to bring a bunch of wine home as a, that was gifted to me by my stepfather back to college. And we'd run out of beer at a keg party. I'm like, I got wine in my dorm room. Everyone would drink some wine. And then people kind of thought I knew about wine. So at that point, I started studying wine. I started reading about wine, started learning a little bit about California wine, the history, French wine, Italian wine. So I could speak to it with some amount of confidence. And then I went off to teach community college after uh, graduating from the University of Redlands in uh, 1992. And what I found is by three years of teaching and a little bit of community college, I got a call from my stepfather, the guy who gave me my first step of wine and my mom saying, hey, we got this piece of property in the Santa Rita Hills or what would become the Santa Rita Hills. We want you to come out and think about you know, managing the property. So at that point, thank goodness I knew a little bit about wine. But then bam, all of a sudden, 1996, I'm working for Brian Babcock and he's doing like chemical bonds you know, on a, a whiteboard and I'm trying to follow along and he's explaining the dynamics of fermentation and the dynamics of fermenting Pinot Noir as opposed to Chardonnay, as opposed to Syrah, as opposed to Sauvignon Blanc. And suddenly I'm 65 hours a week, six, seven days a week, absolutely just in the middle of harvest. And suddenly you go to a dinner party and you talk to people and suddenly by osmosis and by production, suddenly I know more about wine than almost anyone I know because I have been living it for an entire harvest. And that's the moment maybe when people recognized, you know, around the table, I used to tell them I teach high school, they could not have been made. All right, let's take a break. Okay, we got to do commercials, right? And uh, we're going to come back. We are, I I, I didn't even tell listeners what we're going to talk about today. I'm excited. And I think it's actually the, maybe one of the most interesting topics that we've ever discussed on Grape Encounters. And I wanted to save this topic for, you know, sort of the end of the celebration because we now have to move on to show number 1000. But uh, we're going to come back. I will tell you the topic of the day, but I'm going to do one thing, Wes, before we get into that, I'm going to make you tell our listeners the history of wine in 60 seconds. 60 seconds? I think I can probably do it in 60 seconds. All right. Okay. And so we're not going to time you, but you guys are going to love this. And then we're going to get into a topic that I think when you're through with the show is going to help you beyond measure. Back in just a second with Wes Hagen. You're listening to Grape Encounters Radio with your host, David Wilson. We've got 500 episodes under our belt, and we've barely scratched the surface, which is why you'll never find wine in the short subject section of your library. It seems like a day doesn't go by that someone doesn't tell me how lucky I am to be able to taste the multitude of wines that I get to try as part of my job. And while that certainly is true, what is also true is that a great number of wines that I do taste just don't cut it. 
That's why it gives me so much pleasure to tell you about the wines from Peak Ranch, made in the San Ynez Valley on the central coast of California. As exciting as these wines are, I'm especially proud of the fact that they're produced by my oldest friend of all time, John Wagner, along with his charming wife, Jill. John was always the smartest kid in school, and I was always just a tad bit jealous of his determination to be the best. So when I found out that he was the producer of these utterly fantastic wines, I wasn't the least bit surprised. From their remarkably elegant Pinots to their perfectly balanced Chardonnay and luscious Syrahs, it's no surprise that the wines produced at Peak Ranch are simply as good as it gets, and they have the scores to prove it. Log on to peakranch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. You can buy their wines online, which means it'll be the best time you ever spend on the Internet. Go to peakranch.com. Ten years ago, I created Grape Encounters Radio while living in breathtaking Lake Arrowhead. Perched about an hour above the Southern California metropolis in the majestic San Bernardino National Forest. Lake Arrowhead is a place where wine lifestyle flourishes, imaginations run wild, and people come from around the world to discover a more peaceful and re-energizing way of life. Today, I'm delighted to introduce you to Lynn B. Wilson, a bonafide leader in resort real estate sales. From charming alpine cottages to stunning estates on the shores of shimmering Lake Arrowhead, Lynn B. Wilson & Associates have been changing lives for decades. If you truly want to live on top of the world, Lynn B. Wilson & Associates can show you how. They'll even host you in luxury accommodations while you explore the limitless possibilities. Log on to lynnbwilson.com. That's lynnbwilson.com. Live the life you imagine. Welcome back to Grape Encounters Radio, broadcasting from our Central Coast Wine Country studio in idyllic Atascadero, California. Did you know that our studio is built in one of America's top-rated wine bars? You know what that means, don't you? Yep. When we uncork a new episode, you can uncork something very special indeed. When it comes to wine, when I feel a little perplexed about a question, almost inevitably, I will go to Wes Hagen. Wes Hagen I met when we first started the show, and nobody has ever impressed me more. I've known him from day one. He has been my mentor. He's somebody that I respect more than you can possibly imagine. He's a great winemaker. He's really also a great philosopher, not just about wine, but just about a lot of things. And he is the ultimate renaissance man. He would make Ernest Hemingway look like a wimp. Seriously. He would, he would beat me. He would beat me and then shoot me with a 50 caliber machine gun. So I've got huge respect for Hemingway, not only for his writing, but just the way that he lived his life. I can't give myself that level of sort of uh, bravery and uh, daring do that I uh, but, normally associate with Ernest Hemingway. But do you consider yourself to be a renaissance man i mean you really are i am I mean, well you, you roast your own coffee beans you 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 do hunt you do cure your own meats you do make your own wines you make your own cheeses i mean you really do things that 
you know, sort of modern people don't do. You know, I mean, I read a book about salt. I have to make some salt for myself from ocean water. There is something very uh, appealing to me about having skills that if we did go into zombie apocalypse or a post uh, society society that I would be able to do. But I mean, most of it is because I'm very, very interested in things. And I have always had the ability to see the connections in things. I don't think I'm that much better read than some people. But for some reason, the way that my brain works, I make these connections. And when I bring these connections up, as I will when I talk a little bit about the history of wine, this is sort of my bailiwick that um, I'm able to think well on my feet. I'm, uh, I'm pretty good at speaking in front of a group of people and keeping their attention. And I find things and I ask myself the fundamental question that most uh, educators miss. And that is, would I be interested in listening to me talk? That is actually the fundamental principle of this show. When Whenever we do a show, you know, the one thing that I do ask myself is, will listeners walk away from the hour that they invested in Grape Encounters and be a little better for it? Yep. You know, will they take away something? Wine being one of the most complex topics out there where consumer products is concerned. You, a long time ago, did something that I think is really just splendid. First time I saw you do it, actually, I was standing on the Clopepe property looking out over the Santa Rita Hills. And you said something, and I, I remember just sort of scoffing at it. There was a group of us there, and you said, I'm going to give you the history of wine. I don't know whether you said 60 or 90 seconds. doesn't matter. But you did. And um, before we do that, I want to tell people what we're going to do for the rest of the show. But I want to get this out of the way. I had had this thought the other day about, you know, so many people come in and they say, what's a good wine? Can you recommend this or that or the other thing, which you and I deal with every day? And I realized that there is something that we never really talked about, which is what are the wines that if I said, you know, go get this wine or that wine, I'm talking about varietals now, not not labels. Which ones could I recommend and feel reasonably certain that the person who would then go out and buy them would have a good experience, that the wine is reliable, that it meets the expectations that you would expect from that particular wine? So that's what we're going to get into in just a second. But before we do that, Wes... I'm going to turn you loose, okay? I'm ready. The and I history, have my ready. The history of you do you hold it up so I can see it. Okay, there it is. <laughs> he does. All right. <sighs> The history of wine. Give it to us. 200 million years ago, there's one continent, Pangaea, and one grapevine, Vitus ampelopsis. The continents crack and separate into the shapes that we recognize today. We get two major subspecies, the Eurasian subspecies that makes all the great wine that we drink today, and the American subspecies, which makes terrible booze and we don't have to talk about. Uh, there was a domestication event about 10,000 years ago where there was a vine that was found in the forest somewhere between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea in Transcaucasia, in which uh, the vine went from being dioecious, male and female, to the vine being perfected and basically being hermaphroditic. At that point, that one single vine that was captured in a domestication event about 10,000 years ago, basically everywhere that vine went over the last 10,000 years, it has developed and evolved and basically been kept by humans and changed by humans through basically genetic modification just by keeping the, the grapevines that make the best wine. Every single grapevine in the world today can be traced genetically back to one single domestication event that Dr. Patrick McGovern in his book, 
ancient wine called the Noah hypothesis. And I'm going to take just a second to say that the two major mythologies that describe where grapevines come from, uh, Judeo-Christian and Greco-Roman, both describe the same area. You'll remember in the Bible, the person that God saves uh, as the last human being on the planet in the global flood, of course, is Noah. Noah was a viticulturist, so that's a good sign. And he was such a good viticulturist that the Bible says that he landed on Mount Ararat, planted a vineyard, got drunk that night, and there was some weirdness with his family seeing him naked that I won't go into. But the other mythology, the <laughs> okay. Greco-Roman mythology, actually takes us to the exact same place within 200 kilometers of the general area where Mount Ararat was meant to be is another mount, mountain, which is partially mythological, called Mount Nisus. And that's why Dionysus, Dionysus, the, the god, Dio, 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 the god of Mount Nisus was obviously the god who brought the culture of the vine from Asia Minor into Greece. So both major mythologies, the Greco-Roman and the uh, Judeo-Christian, both point to the exact same area where grapevines first developed. And the craziest thing is, Dr. Patrick McGovern thinks that that little kernel of truth in those myths is absolutely accurate, that we did see this domestication event of Vitus vinifera sylvestris into Vitus vinifera vinifera from uh, a two-sexed vine to a one-sexed vine and a vine that could spread all over the world to give us all this delicious wine in the exact same area uh, right there between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, the uplands of Anatolian Turkey, and Iran. That's it. That's two minutes and 39 seconds. I had to add that thing at the end. Hey, what about the birds, though? Well, the birds are really important. Uh, the birds. You left that out. That's the best uh, part of the story. It's more like the physiology of a grapevine. So a grapevine has one job in nature. It basically grows up a tree in a shaded forest trying to get up into the light, and it parasitizes that tree, and it basically makes a big canopy in the tree, and it tries to steal the tree's light. Sometimes it'll even kill the tree, and then use the tree's structure or the dead tree's structure to absorb sunlight in the forest canopy. And why does it uh, absorb sunlight? Well, it absorbs sunlight to grow, and once it's grown enough and recognizes it is in the sunlight, it actually activates the dormant buds to be fruitful the, the subsequent year. Then what happens is because the suns can see the grapevine, of course, the birds can see the grapevine too. So it grows delicious clusters of grapes, just uh, two nodes above last year's wood, which is a perfect area for the bird to land on last year's wood and eat the grapes off of the grapevine. So grapevine is the world's perfect bird feeder. And so then the birds eat the grapes. Why is fruit delicious? To entice animals to eat the fruit and then move the seeds to a different part of the forest where the birds relieve themselves. The seed drops out in a little bit of wet fertilizer. And if all goes right, about one in a hundred seeds will germinate and start growing up a different tree. Here's the thing that'll blow your mind though. So some of these grapes are delicious and they fill the bird's bellies, but then a very, very few of these grapes will ferment on the grapevine at the very end of the season and start stinking. And then that smell of fermentation attracts animals to eat the fermented fruit, which intoxicates the animals, which allows the animals to disperse the seeds in a more random fashion than if they were sober. The birds are dropping off seeds in places that they normally wouldn't. Wes, I am exhausted. I'm going to take a <laughs> cold shower. We'll be back with more grape encounters right after this. We've got to take a breather for a minute or two. Don't go away. Remember, if we don't let the wine breathe, it's impossible for the show to be done in good taste. In Greek mythology, we learn the mysterious connection between walnuts and wine. When Dionysus, the god of wine, fell in love with Princess Caria of Laconia, her sisters tried to prevent the romance, so Dionysus turned them into rocks. He also turned his beloved Caria into a walnut tree. She was, after all, a hard nut to crack. 
At mmorganics.com in Paso Robles, California, Walnuts and Wine is the ultimate love story. You'll flip over their 100% organic port-style dessert wines and organic heirloom walnut products, including sprouted snacking walnuts in five awesome flavors, irresistible raw organic walnut butter, free trade chocolate-covered walnuts, and for bakers, MM Organics produces 100% gluten-free walnut flour, estate walnut oil, and of course, their crazy delicious raw walnuts. Get all their products online at mmorganics.com. That's mmorganics.com. The Central Coast of California is world-renowned for exceptional wines, but it's also one of the most vibrant and alluring travel destinations in America because the wide range of things to see and do here is absolutely astonishing. From stunning beaches to breathtaking hiking trails to world-class dining, artisan craftswork, and so much more, California's Central Coast is addictive. For those visiting this magical region, there's no better place to call home base than the city of Atascadero. Atascadero is perfectly centered in the middle of everything you'll want to see and do while you're here. A true slice of Americana. The locals here are eager to welcome you, and the accommodations are plentiful, comfortable, and affordable. Atascadero is a 365 days a year destination with mild winter weather and mostly sunny days, even when the rest of the country is bundled up. For more information about the warm and welcoming town of Atascadero, log on to visitatascadero.com. Discover the California Central Coast at visitatascadero.com. Welcome back to Grape Encounters Radio. After 10 years and 500 episodes, David has become very comfortable with breaking the rules, as you'll see momentarily, which is all well and good as long as he doesn't break our expensive glasses. Back with Grape Encounters Radio. Gosh, I have heard Wes's account of the history of wine a gazillion times. And my favorite part, he totally omitted. Wes, you used to tell the story about how the human beings would be sitting there watching the birds get intoxicated and fall out of the trees. And they'd, they're going like, hey, what's with the birds? I want to do that. Obviously, Paleolithic, Calcolithic human beings were so in tune with their environment with nothing to distract us. Watching animals consume various things would let us know if they were edible and if they could be a good food source. But at the same time, they would also very carefully watch certain animals consuming fermented fruits, maybe some special kinds of mushrooms, uh, various types of things. And if they saw that the animals did become a little goofy, they may be more likely to follow suit and uh, experiment uh, with their own uh, forms of intoxication, which are just so important to the development of human history. All right, let's get into the topic. We're halfway through the show now, but the topic I, I wanted to get into is this. I don't know how many different varietals are readily accessible to the wine consumer, but it's a lot. And you may have a better uh, idea about what that number might be. But, you know, when people come to me and they ask, what's a good wine that I should drink? What should I try? You know, there's the big eight or nine that we all know about, Cabernet, Merlot, Pinot, Chardonnay, and so on. But there's a lot of varietals now that are starting to get some foothold in the wine industry. And I'm finding that there are certain varietals that I can steer people to and feel pretty comfortable that 
you know, forget brands for a second. Yeah. You know, forget regions, all of that. That I could say, hey, if you go try this, you know, you're probably going to have a nice experience. Okay. So I thought we would banter back and forth for the next, you know, half of the show. Throw some varietals out there, and there's just one simple question. Safe or not safe? Yeah. In other words, can you take it on faith, or should you really taste it before you buy it? Yes. Because you can't always taste it before you buy it. No. I strongly believe that we are living in a moment in wine history where wine has never been better. Right. And grabbing any random bottle off of a shelf is probably going to deliver. But, I mean, I think the first thing we need to do is kind of rip Pinot Noir a new one just to say that oh i can't believe you're doing that <laughs> well i'm a pinot aficionado and i happen to live in a place in the world where it's hard not to make a great pinot noir but pinot noir is kind of the princess and the princess in the pea you can lay her down anywhere but if there's one little stone under 30 mattresses she's like ow oh, i don't like it here so pinot noir i think we should start by saying maybe heck of a lot safer than it used to be but it probably has more variation in both style fruit quality uh the winemaker's affectation uh barrel treatment, flavor comp. Like if you say, I am hoping I drink this style of Pinot Noir tonight and then randomly grab a bottle of Pinot Noir, you're going to be really disappointed. To lay a groundwork of what I was thinking about when you told us what we were going to thinking about, I kept thinking about like uh, bands that have like their first hit or their first great album. It's like if you were listening to Radiohead 20 years ago, you knew something special. And now they have so many different styles of music and so many different albums. I think the same is true in wine that the varieties I I think we're going to agree on as far as safe bets that are going to be delicious, uniformly good, I think are going to be surprising to people. There's a few that I don't think are surprising, but I know that a lot of them are varieties that are just starting to be experimented with and becoming popular in the United States. So fewer winemakers are, are doing them. And because fewer winemakers are producing these wines, I think that the consistency is higher because the people that are going out and making these wines are excellent winemakers with great vision and, okay. and, and great creativity. All right. So let's aspire to do at least 20. Okay. Oh, let's try it. All right. You opened up the conversation with Pinot. Yes. One thing for sure. There's the funky Pinots. In yeah. fact, there's no wine that gets described by the word funk more than Pinot. And there's the not funky Pinots. If you like funky Pinots, that's great. But a lot of people don't like them. So determining whether or not it's a funky or non-funky Pinot, meaning it's got the that forest floor kind of thing, rotten leaves and that sort of thing. A lot of people are really put off by it. A lot of people like it. And so Pinot becomes dangerous for that fact alone. Yes. And also for the fact that a lot of people planted Pinot because of the movie Sideways and the popularity of Pinot and they just can't make it. Okay. Yes. So, so well, let's move on from Pinot. Let's talk yes. about the two most popular wines in America today. Cabernet first. Safe yes. or not safe? Uh, generally safe because it's been homogenized by the fact that about 80% of it's probably made by three different corporations. Okay. And I say not safe because so much of the Cabernet that we drink today is what I call a tanker truck wine. The bulk of the Cabernet juice is sold off and then and homogenized is a great word to describe it. We use a lot of chemicals, a lot of additives to make this sort of wine that is the same from bottle to bottle to bottle. And if you like that, 
that, that's fine. But if you're looking for a great Cabernet, you're not going to randomly find it. Mm. I understand your point. All right, uh, let's go to Chardonnay. Chardonnay is not safe because it is the editorial model of the wine world. It's not about her. It's about the clothes we hang on her. And you do not know the fashion sense of the winemaker just by looking at the label. Meaning? Well, I just think that generally winemakers manipulate Chardonnay more than any other varietal. They bring it in. Even what you do before it's even going to be fermented, you got your yeast, you have how much wood, what kind of wood, how much toast on the wood, how much malolactic fermentation. Is it going to be full mallow, medium mallow? Chardonnay is just, it is the most stylistic wine in the world. You could think of it as being orchestral, like all these different moving parts to make something beautiful. Uh, It is still synonymous with white wine. There's more Chardonnay planted in the United States than any other white variety. Uh, By far in Santa Barbara County, we have more Chardonnay. And I'll say this, even though I think Santa Barbara County Chardonnay, if you like a little bit crisper, a little less manipulated wine, I think most people would, Santa Barbara County Chardonnay would appeal to them because the wines are so expressive and crisp and beautiful. But there is even in Santa Barbara, a very wide variety of styles. And I think that makes it difficult to get exactly what you want. So so the Chardonnay can be very oaky. It can be very buttery. It can be buttery and oaky, and it can be neither. So those are three very different things. And I have seen people who love like a stainless steel Chardonnay absolutely hate the others. All Chardonnays are not created equal. They're created for very different audiences. So taste it before you buy it. You better really vet out that wine. Okay. Let's go to a wine that is very popular. We do a great job with it. It's Syrah. Wow. Not safe. Not safe. No, it's from sort of the Britannomyces, earthy kind of um, complex wines of the Rhone to the very fruit forward wines of the warmer parts of California to the cool climate Syrah is being produced to be in the Cito Vineyard and the Santa Rita Hills that are just great acidity and floral and uh, just compote. It's just it. Syrah is one of those wines. Wines, I think, that are all over the place. Now, I think that's less true of Syrah $15 and under. I think it may be a little bit more safe. Um, I'm a big fan of Syrah, but I don't find myself buying it that often. So something unsafe about it, I think. All right, let's reach way out. Ready? Yep. Moscato. Absolutely safe. Absolutely, like yes. Uh, there's no doubt. Do you know what Moscato actually uh, refers to in the name? Go. Uh, mosca. Uh, it's uh, the flies. When you crush Moscato, every insect from within five miles comes to the press and tries to get some of the juice because it is so aromatic. So if you stick your nose in a glass of good Moscato and you say, I'm not really interested, I wonder if you actually have a soul. Of course, Moscato is fun wine. It's it's not serious wine. Geeks say, oh, it's too sweet. I won't have it unless maybe with some dessert or for breakfast. Low alcohol, super fun. If you have any skill as a winemaker, you can make a Moscato that will bring people to the glass the same way that the, the flies and the, and the bees and the hornets and the wasps come flying as soon as you start crushing it. All right, let's go back to Bordeaux. Yes. Merlot. Merlot is absolutely safe. I think Merlot is probably the safest red wine on the planet besides the one that you're going to bring up later that we talked about earlier. I think Merlot is uh, soft, plush, plummy, uh, fruity, delicious. And I'll tell you why it's even more safe because of that darn movie Sideways, you know, that did for Pinot Noir what the Soviet Union did for socialism and did for Merlot, you know, something very, very ugly. Merlot is still on sale. Merlot is still 25% under what it should be costing because of that movie. To get Merlot back into everyone's uh, wine cellars and their glasses, we invested in value and we reduced the price of most
most California Merlots and Merlots from Washington State and the other places where Mer- it's Merlot pretty- to me is like eating in San Francisco. San Francisco is an eating town. Oh, and yeah. if you're not a good restaurant, you don't survive. And that's true. Merlot is under so much pressure to either be good or be gone. And yes. that's and that's why I think you can trust it. All right, one real quick last one. We'll go to a break. Yep. Cab Franc. Not safe yet. I, I think uh, in a lot of places it exhibits a lot of green and herbaceous character, which I actually like in Cab Franc. I think it's less uniform than either Merlot or Cabernet. All right, we're going to take a break. My guest is my favorite wine go-to guy. It's Wes Hagen. He's a fabulous winemaker. He is just a, a tremendous scholar in wine, a great wine judge, great wine writer. If there is anybody who knows wine that you can trust, it's Wes Hagen. All right, so we're going to take a break. Wes, hang with me. We'll be back in just a second with more Grape Encounters. Sometimes drinking wine makes you just want to curl up in a comfy chair and dream about puppy dogs, faraway places, and other happy thoughts. Or you can just enjoy that cuvee in your glass and lose yourself in the conversation on Grape Encounters Radio. It seems like a day doesn't go by that someone doesn't tell me how lucky I am to be able to taste the multitude of wines that I get to try as part of my job. And while that certainly is true, what is also true is that a great number of wines that I do taste just don't cut it. That's why it gives me so much pleasure to tell you about the wines from Peak Ranch, made in the San Ynez Valley on the central coast of California. As exciting as these wines are, I'm especially proud of the fact that they're produced by my oldest friend of all time, John Wagner, along with his charming wife, Jill. John was always the smartest kid in school, and I was always just a tad bit jealous of his determination to be the best. So when I found out that he was the producer of these utterly fantastic wines, I wasn't the least bit surprised. From their remarkably elegant Pinots to their perfectly balanced Chardonnay and luscious Syrahs, it's no surprise that the wines produced at Peak Ranch are simply as good as it gets, and they have the scores to prove it. Log on to peakranch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. You can buy their wines online, which means it'll be the best time you ever spend on the Internet. Go to peakranch.com. Ten years ago, I created Grape Encounters Radio while living in breathtaking Lake Arrowhead. Perched about an hour above the Southern California metropolis in the majestic San Bernardino National Forest. Lake Arrowhead is a place where wine lifestyle flourishes, imaginations run wild, and people come from around the world to discover a more peaceful and re-energizing way of life. Today, I'm delighted to introduce you to Lynn B. Wilson, a bona fide leader in resort real estate sales. From charming alpine cottages to stunning estates on the shores of shimmering Lake Arrowhead, Lynn B. Wilson & Associates have been changing lives for decades. If you truly want to live on top of the world, Lynn B. Wilson & Associates can show you how. They'll even host you in luxury accommodations while you explore the limitless possibilities. Log on to lynnbwilson.com. That's lynnbwilson.com. Live the life you imagine. People often ask, why hasn't someone tarred and feathered Grape Encounters host David Wilson for breaking so many of the old rules? Simple. 
No one likes the old rules. There was a popular group back in the 60s and 70s. They were called Blind Faith. And we're talking about having blind faith in wine. My guest is Wes Hagen. If you have been a, a longtime Grape Encounters listener, you know he's one of my absolute most popular guests on here. And we're talking about wines that you can have blind faith in. Uh, Wes, I'm going to let you throw some wines out now. We don't have a lot of time, but let's get through as many as we can in the next few minutes that we have. You bet. So I am not wasted and I do know my way home. I have seen blind faith. <laughs> They are wonderful stuff. I'm going to throw out, first I was going to say sparkling wine, but I think it's too broad. So I'm going to say champagne. Very safe. Very Okay, safe. Because you said champagne. And, you know, sure. there's a lot of rules that surround making champagne. And I think that champagne, generally speaking, is fairly consistent for the most part. I would agree. And I, I'd never really turned down a glass of uh, delicious bubbles from the champagne region. So what about Francia Corta? I like what the Italians are doing with sparkling wine. I think with their more expensive cuvées, they should get away from using wood. I've had a number of of expensive sparkling wines from Italy that were a little too woody for me. I really love Cava, but you know my go-to sparkling wine, I have to admit, is Gloria Ferrer non-vintage Brut Rosé from Carneros. It's 20 bucks a bottle, and it is about the surest bet you're going to get. It's delicious, it's bubbly, and uh, it goes with just about anything. Plus, I would say this, that anybody that is making bubbly in the uh, Method Champenois, uh, they're going to go to extra trouble and extra expense to make it, so chances are they're not going to do that with crappy wine. Yeah. But I will say that you have to be extraordinarily careful because if you take a base wine that has any type of a fault and you make it sparkling, that fault will leap out of the glass fourfold. So it really does take a very good winemaker to make uh, bubbles. I always say probably sparkling wine is the second most difficult alcohol in the world to make behind a lager beer. Okay, next one. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Oh, it's safe as long as you understand the difference between, especially today, This I wouldn't have said this five years ago, but New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs versus California Sauvignon Blancs. They're totally different, and I happen to like the New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs. I like that really uh, tropical, you know, the tropical notes that are in the, that wine. It's really very pleasant to drink. California Sauvignon Blancs, if you understand them, you know. They're pretty safe. I would say stylistically, it can be as almost as difficult as Pinot Noir because some people put it in barrels, some people take it through malolactic, some people it's crisp and bright and grassy uh, with uh, you know tomato kind of like tomato skin notes or what they call gooseberry. So I would say Sauvignon Blanc is not safe, but it's probably safer than Pinot Noir. Okay, next one, Grenache. God, I would say that's really safe. I'd say it's grapey and fruity and delicious, whether it comes from Gigondas all the way to uh, Paso Robles down to uh, Santa Maria Valley. Grenache is the grapiest, most primary Venice variety. And uh, it, it also tends to pick up this beautiful confectionery sort of cotton candy aroma that, that drives me crazy. I love Grenache. It's a tough, tough grape to get right, though. I like to call it the evil twin brother of Pinot Noir. We sell a Grenache here that is called Breca, and okay. it is is a Spanish Grenache, and it's made really in a more California style, so much more fruit forward. Number 16 wine in the world from wine enthusiast. And people wow. just go bananas for it. And I like it a little better when there's a little more fruit to it. If yep. it's a little too dry, it could be a little bit iffy, but I'd say it's safe. It's funny because I was just talking to my friend Alex just the other day, and I was saying Grenache, it's, it's Grenache. And did he know whether it was French or Spanish first? He said it was actually the current thought is it actually started in Sardinia. 
uh, in Italy, which is not, not neither here nor there, but a, a good little uh, aside. Uh, my next wine is Zinfandel. Talk about Paso Robles. Let's talk about the California heritage varietal. I say Zinfandel is is freaking safe if you stay in California and if you expect a Primitivo to be the same, which is the Italian version, you might be disappointed. But if you like jammy, you know, and not all the Zinfandels are made jammy, but if you like, you know, you like a big fruit wine, Zin's a pretty safe wine. I agree. I think it's a great California lifestyle wine outside grilling, outside picnicking, being active, having fun, backyard parties. Uh, Zinfandel, to me, if I had to choose a wine in California that represents California, that Zinfandel, I think not only is it safe, but it really does represent that beautiful California sunshine. And, All right. And can I, can I throw one at you that is starting to pop up a lot in California right now? It's a little teeny tiny percentage of grapes planted in California, but I love this grape. I love it. Tanat. Tanat. Wow. Yeah. It's a grape that doesn't show up all that much in California. Over the last few nights, I've been drinking a Tanat from the Rattlesnake Hills of uh, Washington State, and it's just been fantastic. Now, it is going to have as much tannin as a Cabernet, maybe even a little bit more. It's going to be bright, dark, kind of purple and black fruits. Is it safe? Wow. You know, I've never had a Tanat that really moved too stylistically away from any other Tanat. So I'm going to probably agree with you. I think I know where you're going with this. I'm going to agree that Tanat is a safe bet for people that like a big, rich, tannic uh, red wine. Okay, next. Oh, I would say uh, let's go from uh, a freaky red to a freaky white. How about Viognier? Oh, not safe. Not safe. Not safe because Viognier really runs a broad spectrum of sweet to not sweet. And most people, I think, expect Viognier to have a bit of residual sugar to it. And if it's a, a drier Viognier, then I think you might be disappointed. I will say this though, Viognier is becoming more and more popular as a wine that is being blended with things like Chardonnay and Chablis, and it's a great blending wine. It seems like it's getting blended more lately than being a single varietal wine, and from that extent, I would say it's safe, but if you're looking for a little bit of sugar, it's not always going to be there. We are out of time, but I'm going to try to squeeze one last thing in for you, okay? Sure. Your answer has got to be 30 seconds, okay? I'm ready. Red blends. Safe. Incredibly safe, and I think that's why they are doing such a good job, because when you take the wines into a blend, you're going to spend you know, a couple days with a bunch of winemakers around a table figuring out which exact blend it is. That amount of care and in the blending, I think, turns into a safe wine in the market. Okay. That was fun. It was kind of fun. Perfect. All right. Wes Hagen. Wes is the brand ambassador for the Miller Family Wine Company, and he is also the winemaker for Jay Wilkes. Wes, any place you want to send people to? Well, I mean, they can follow me on social media, at Wes Hagen on uh, Twitter, at Wes Hagen Instagram, Wes Hagen on Facebook. JayWilkes.com is where the wines are. Thank you for the opportunity to share that. And again, congratulations, David, and uh, everybody at Grape Encounters for all this wonderful time that we spent together. All right. Okay. Well, Wes Hagen, my absolute favorite go-to guy when it comes to wine. And that is going to do it for Grape Encounters. Wes, thanks very much. It was a pleasure. Well, this episode of Grape Encounters is in the bag. It's hard to imagine you haven't missed some episodes, so why not hunt them down at GrapeEncounters.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast sites. Grape Encounters Studios are located in beautiful Atascadero, California. That's Central Coast wine country, baby. Come visit us. But be warned, you won't want to leave. 
That's okay. We have a spare bedroom. But it's 55 degrees and full of old bottles. 